You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Monday, Canada. How's the weekend? Rest up. See some loved ones, do some exercise, maybe begin early yard work, maybe catch up on some sleep, maybe visit someone who's got COVID. Man, it's it's crazy. The number of people that got the got the the vid. Got the vid. Crazy. Lots going on though. Uh I was in uh we drove to Montreal to visit one of our kids, our, our beautiful daughter. And we get there, and it was one of those great nights. My wife and I get to Montreal this afternoon. She's like, yeah, I can't see you tonight. I've got to go out uh, with some of my friends. One of my friends is in a play for school, so we're going to go see her. So I'll see you tomorrow morning. We were like, great. You know that moment where your kids are like, thanks for driving to see me. I'm busy, but I'll see you tomorrow. And we were excited for that. I remember doing the same thing. And we got a great show for you today. Um, One, I did this barn burner interview with um, Jean Charest, and he blasted Pierre Polyever, who's been blasting him. So Pierre Polyever says, uh, hey, Jean Charest, you're a liberal. You shouldn't even be running to be the leader of the conservatives. I should be the leader. And then Jean Charest came on uh, CTV Question Period, the show I host on Sundays on CTV Main Channel, and he's like, he should be disqualified from the race because of his support of... Not the truckers, he said, the illegal blockade. He, th- he thinks he supported lawbreakers. Also, I'm going to play you that, and then we'll, we'll talk about that. Because that has trended all over the place. Charest is trying to fight his way back into a race where Pierre Polyever's got all the crowds and the momentum. And he's making headlines. So we got politics. We've also got pets. This is something that, that I really think you will not want to miss later in the program. Because at first I thought, I do not think maybe we should do this because it's someone who says owning a dog is selfish. Now, you know, uh, we have a dog, Puddle, our half lab, half St. Bernard. She's getting older. She's about 10 and a half. We love pudds. And we have a cat, Oliver. And many of you probably have dogs and cats and pets. But this person has, has been researching and says, actually, owning a dog is selfish now. People treat it selfishly. Oh, God. Don't chastise me for loving my dog. Because I don't love that. You know, when people, especially someone who's an academic, talking down to people who are just loving their dogs. But then here's what I read, and this is interesting. And this is what, you're going to meet this woman who says owning a dog can be a selfish pursuit. Okay? It's kind of interesting. Get this, according to the stats from the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and the Canadian Humane Society, in 2019, there were 400,000 shelter dogs euthanized across North America. 400,000. And this caught my interest. I'm like, what? 400,000 shelter dogs are euthanized? And when you meet Molly Lebensky, Molly's going to say, yeah. And people are getting designer dogs and paying dogs and paying thousands of dollars and they want the perfect dog and they're breeding and crossbreeding and ba-ba-ba-ba-laka. Why don't you just take, if you want a dog so much, save one of the 400,000 dogs that we're killing every year. And then I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm bringing on Molly. 
because I had a point of view on this that was pretty, don't tell me owning a dog is selfish. Don't talk down to me. Don't tell me if I'm a good dog. You know, I've had these debates before with experts. Oh, Evan, you're a bad owner because you let your cat outside. Like we have a big backyard. Yeah, I let the cat outside because he wants to go outside. Oh, you're a terrible cat owner. And I don't love that. I mean, I don't mind the debate. I just don't love being told I'm a bad cat owner. We love our cat. But people say, oh, you don't love birds. You're going to let your cat die. And the stats, then you realize, God, maybe I shouldn't let the cat outside, but I don't want to declaw a cat and keep the cat inside. Is that cruel? So, so now I'm in a tizzy about this, and I want, to, I want to listen to what Molly has to say, and then I'm going to open the phone lines. And then at the end of the show, we're going to talk about hybrid work, but I'm going to open on that real quick. Because the liberals and the president of the Treasury Board, Mona Forche, in their new budget are saying, you know what we got to do? We've got to start converting office buildings into public housing and housing. You know why? Because hybrid work is here to stay. And so what they're going to do to try to save like $6 billion in five years, $6 billion in five years, $6 billion in five years, is they're going to say, look, we're going to sell some of these buildings and we're going to have a review and we're going to look at maybe, you know, people are working at home, how we can be flexible and use less office space and strengthen the downtown core of Ottawa and, and let more people you know, live there instead of just paying for empty buildings. And so I thought about that for a minute. Maybe that's a good thing. But I just thought because my wife, who's a chief of staff at a company, and she's in charge of, among other things, you know, human resources, a lot of stuff sort of comes into her her, her world. And, and she's always talking about her staff wanting to work from home. And some kind of hybrid post-COVID. We have a different story here in, in radio and television because we, we want people back and people want to come back because they are, you know, the news business requires a lot of this. We want to be together to put together the stories. And, and working on remote has not been great. But then a friend of mine who's the, who, who leads a company, he says, you know, some of his engineers don't want to come in. And hybrid work is a thing. You've got big companies like Shopify who have made this permanent. Like, we're not, we're not going back to an office. And so later in the show, I want to have this debate. It seems, par- partly I love coming to the office, okay? Because I, I thrive on teams, and I like seeing people. But here's what I think, and I know there's lots of studies done, that productivity goes up when you give people more flexible hours and they can work at home. But I'm just going to be candid with you. And then we can debate this. I think people who work at home, they probably are happier, but they don't get as much done. That's my, like when you work at home, you're working, someone calls, can you get the door? The UPS guy's here. The dog's got to be let out. The, um, you know, the kids are home from school. Someone calls you. You know what? You get off the phone. Maybe, uh, you, you know, oh, something's on your phone. Maybe you lie down a little more because it's the commute. You got to make yourself coffee. Like, I'm not saying you don't get your work done, but let's be clear. Everyone likes working at home because there's less pressure. There's just less pressure. You can kind of do what no one's looking at you. 
a couple phone calls and you get your work done on your own time. Is it really more productive? Here's the other thing. And, and a CEO said this to me. He said, well, there's a young guy that works for him that doesn't want to come in. Really smart. And there's a young woman that works and that does want to come. And he said, how am I going to promote this young guy? I won't because the young woman that's working, she's, I'm mentoring her. She watches me work all day. She's the one who's soaking up so much information all day, how I talk to people, what I do. And he's alone. He's not networking. He's not absorbing information. She will get promoted ahead of him because she's here She's trusted. She's learning quicker. He's competent. He's good. And he'll be frustrated. Listen, I'm all for, I know that hybrid work is here to stay. But my contention is, I think it's lower stress. But like you should hear some of the stories. People are phoning bosses and saying, hey, I'm going to be working at home. You know, that's our new policy. But since there's free coffee at work at a coffee machine and I'll be working at a coffee shop, can you pay for two of my coffees? No, we don't pay for your coffee. That's a choice. No, we're not paying for your Internet. That's a choice. We have an office that we pay for all that. Come in. Do you believe you're more productive working at home? Do you believe that you can advance and learn as much from home as opposed to being around people? So we'll debate that later because I really want to hear from you on on the is the, the the ups and downs of hybrid. But when we come back, I'm going to play you this like Jean Charest uncorks on Pierre Polyevre and the conservative race leadership race is is lava right now. So the volcano of Charest, and then your thoughts next. Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. So Jean Charest told me that Pierre Polyevre should be disqualified from the leadership race because of his support, he says, of the illegal blockade. And Pierre Polyevre said Jean Charest shouldn't be running because he's a liberal anyway, because he was the once the liberal premier of Quebec. Look, I spoke to Jean Charest on CTV's question period yesterday. And I was going to speak about the budget and, you know, getting defense spending up uh, to 2% of GDP and, and some other issues. But it quickly pivoted to him attacking Pierre Polyevre. Why? Because Pierre Polyevre is getting crowds of like a thousand people all over the country everywhere he goes. And this race uh, is getting tight and, and they got to sign up members very soon. So, uh, I, I, so Jean Charest came to town. So I, I brought him on. I had asked Pierre Polyevre to join me. He will soon. I asked Patrick Brown and I asked Leslie Lewis, by the way, all of them to react to the budget. They all said they were unavailable, but Sheree didn't. So I first said to him, you want to boost military spending to 2% of GDP, which is the NATO goal, but that's 20 to $25 billion, according to the PBO. How would you get that money and still, as you claim, be able to balance the books? Where does the money come from, Jean Sheree? Well, you're not going to do it overnight, obviously, especially given the seriousness of what you're spending on, which includes military equipment, procurement, submarines, drones, radars. One of the things that I would do, Evan, that I feel very strongly about is opening two bases in northern Canada in the Arctic, one with a deep water port, because we are neighbors of the Russians. This is about 
occupying our own territory and sovereignty, something fairly urgent in this wor world. And, I, you know, the war, war in Ukraine has been an eye-opener for Canadians in regards to our own security. We Stephen can't rely Har on anyone Stephen else. Stephen Harper wanted to do that. didn't happen. Well, I'm going to make it happen. And as we look to the future, this is about an urgent matter of occupying our own territory, our own sovereignty. But when and, would and you hit the 2%? I, I only, well, it'll take, it'll, it'll take time to do it because if you're buying military equipment, then you have to get it right. Our procurement system has been a mess. We know that. The Liberals have delayed the uh, purchase of the F-35 seven years for absolutely nothing. I mean, that's seven lost years under Mr. Trudeau. So we have to do it in an orderly way. It'll happen over a certain period of time, but we have to get it right. Inflation, 30-year high. Affordability yeah. is key. The Liberals in this budget said that we're going to tackle this with the housing initiative. We have the tax-free savings account, allow people to save up to you know, $40,000 a year in four years. Um, have they done enough to tackle affordability? And if not, what would you, what would you do to, to well, tackle inflation now? Here, here's the problem with the Liberal approach. Here we're coming out of COVID. We have spent like never before in the history of Canada. That has fed into the inflation dynamic. And the Liberals want to spend more to be able to layer over another uh, level of spending on areas of provincial jurisdiction, by the way. There's two things that we should be doing in regards to inflation. One is controlling spending, bringing it down. That's the part that we control because we don't control everything about inflation. The second part is reducing, I think, the tax load of Canadians. Okay. I did that in Quebec, by the way, in the Great Recession, and that had a very positive effect on the economy, but also allowed middle class and lower income people to have more money in their pockets. But to be fair, they are reducing the debt to GDP ratio. In four years, they say the deficit is going to be about $8 billion. The economy is growing. Unemployment is low. I understand inflation's giving them more revenues. But what would you cut then if well, you're going to do it? The, the problem with saying that, by the way, is that you're four years out and things happen. Is there anyone who thought, who's listening to us today, that there would be a war in Ukraine? only six months ago. And Canada's projections on all the metrics that the economic community look at for per capita growth puts us among the lowest places in the world. One of your chief rivals, uh, Pierre Polyevre, and I want to get to the leadership race, says yeah. the first thing he'd do is he'd cut the price on carbon, cut the carbon tax. Would you? I would have a policy that promotes uh, carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, green or blue, biofuels, small modular reactors, and there would be a price on carbon. And it should not... But that's the Liberal... Like, no, 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 it's not. Well, no, they it's had not. carbon capture and storage, they've got a tax credit for carbon capture and storage, they support nu small nuclear, and they've got a price mechanism. But they, won't but they won't develop resources, when in fact we need a policy that transitions us from a high carbon economy to a lower carbon economy. The Liberals, the Liberals are, again, are all about spending. On this carbon tax, there was a recent increase on the 1st of April that should not have happened because we're on in an inflationary period and we have a war in Ukraine. The tax should have been simple and flexible enough that if you have that kind okay. of situation, you know, don't do it. But allow me to finish. It can't discriminate against rural Canadians. It cannot be a wealth transfer tax for the country and it has to make sense. But let me also add this. Our carbon position going into the next campaign cannot be a slogan. And if the only thing you're offering is a slogan, the Conservatives will be dead in the water. It has to be credible, simple, flexible. Mr. Pauly Everett has hit on you, as, as you know, you and I have talked about it as a Liberal, right? He's attracting big crowds, sir. Like, I'm telling you, you're seeing a thousand people there, and I've seen some of your crowds, 500 in Quebec, but smaller crowds. He's got momentum. He's talking about axing 
carbon price, cutting things, getting rid of the gatekeepers. Uh, now you've become very much more openly critical of him. Specific. Now you're here in Ottawa specifically about his support of the truckers. Yes. Why? Not, not support. Support of a blockade. I mean, what he says he supports freedom. No, 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 no. He no. says he supports freedom. Excuse, excuse me. I mean, d d were you mistaken? I mean, he actually didn't support the blockade. What you saw, what he did was he was, was out there. He was out no, there with he, the truckers. You, you sound like you drank the Kool Aid here. No, no, he and was no, out no. there with the truckers. Every, I'm giving everyone, you his view. Evan, everyone knows that Pierre Polyev supported the blockade, and I don't know. I don't care how much spin you put into it. Here is someone who makes laws and says I can break laws because I'm above the law. Well, I'm sorry. If you want to be a leader of a party, if you want to sit in the House of Commons and make laws, you have to obey them. The laws of the land are not a buffet table from which you choose what you want or do not want to support. And if you say to Canadians, I want to be the leader of the Conservative Party and I want to be the chief legislator of the country, but I don't have to obey the laws, I'm sorry. That's not just a failure in leadership. It disqualifies you, as far as I'm concerned, as being someone who thinks or aspires to be a leader of a party. But, sir, uh, he would say he doesn't support any illegal activity. He just supported the truckers. And by your logic, what about Candace Bergen, the interim leader? She was out there. Andrew no, 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 Shearer, no, no, no. the Evan, former leader. Evan, he was out there. No, no. Lots I'm of sorry. conservatives I'm sorry. were out there. I'm sorry, Evan. I mean, it's not that, you know, it's not that easy. He supported blockades. Blockades that uh, forced people to l close down their businesses, that made us lose jobs, that even had the White House, Evan, call up the PMO here in Ottawa and say to Prime Minister Trudeau, do you want us to clean this up? I mean, that's how far this thing went. So you think he should be disqualified for it? I'm saying, I'm saying, as he goes into this race, that if he supports, as he supported blockades, that how can he make the argument that I can be a leader of a party and a prime minister of the country and not obey the laws of the land? I mean, clearly, I mean, every Canadian saw this. So now he's going to tell us that what happened actually did not happen. I'm, I'm sorry, it's not that simple. He cannot redo the past, and he can't actually invent events. He supported the blockade. There's consequences to those decisions, and one of the consequences is that he should not be a leader of a party, even less a prime minister, and make laws if he can't obey the laws that he himself will vote for. He wants to make Canada the crypto capital of, of the world. He says that, you know, he's running, he, he talks a lot about the central bank because he believes it's printing money and causing inflation. Too much money chasing too few goods and he will stop the printing of money. And one way he's talking about it is the crypto capital. Uh, he's talked about opting out of inflation through Bitcoin. What's your response? You had Stephen Paulas on this show who made a comment about that because he also affirmed that this was a way of getting out of inflation. Here you have someone who is the governor of the Bank of Canada, extremely credible on this issue, who says, excuse me, I'm sorry, that's just not the case. This is bizarre. Not only is it wrong, it's just simply bizarre. But crypto is real. But, but cryptocurrency is sure. here to stay. But, you know, cryptocurrency needs to be regulated and needs to be understood but I'm concerned. You know what worries me? There's people who are going to listen to him and put a lot of money into cryptocurrency and are going to be wiped out. Well, that's Jean Charest. As I pointed out to him later in the interview, well, you can already buy ETFs of crypto. But I want to know what your sense is. In response to that interview, Pierre Polyevre has said, this guy's increased sales tax. Jean Charest's a liberal. Jean Charest's not telling the truth. I mean, it's getting ugly. People are calling each other liars, trying to disqualify each other. I want you to react to that. Does that 
1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Do political insults or these kind of attacks turn you off or help you? Next. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. So I want to hear your thoughts about this conservative race, which is heating up. Jean Charest says, told me on uh, CTV's question period on the weekend, Pierre Paul ever should be disqualified from the leadership race. Get this, disqualified from the leadership race because um, he uh, supported what he says is a, here, I'll show, I'm going to show you the clip. He says, not just support the truckers during the protest, but the illegal blockades. Here he is. And if you say to Canadians, I want to be the leader of the Conservative Party and I want to be the chief legislator of the country, but I don't have to obey the laws, I'm sorry. That's not just a failure in leadership. It disqualifies you. Okay, that's Jean Charest. And then on the same time, you have Pierre Polyever calling like people like Patrick Brown a liar and... Um, Jean Charest a liar and saying all and saying he's a liberal anyway, so he shouldn't even be running. Do these insults turn you off? Do they or do they say, you know what, I like a robust race. I want these uh contenders to go at it in a heavyweight punch up and see who 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 can stand the heat because this is important. One eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. By the way, yes, I asked Pierre Pauly ever to join me on Sunday. I asked Les and Lewis and I asked Patrick Brown. They will, they have before, but they were unavailable this weekend. Um one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. Evan, I'm a liberal, and I'd vote conservative if Sheree was the leader. He sounds and acts like a prime minister. Well, that may be the Sheree pitch, right? That he can actually win liberals. Uh, if we wanted Sheree, Evan, we would have stuck with O'Toole. That's the knock. They've tried this already. O'Toole was knifed in the back and the front. Evan, reaction is not the solution. These attacks are embarrassing. Greg in Brampton. Evan, what law does Jean Charest claim Pierre Pauly ever broke? Because there's no laws controlling opinions, and there should not be. Jean Charest has proven himself to be questionable values that are not in line with conservative voters. I think his, his sense, and I think you're making a good point, is that he supported and he, that Pierre Pauly ever himself didn't break laws, and I think he should be very careful there. But I think he's saying he openly supported an, an, an illegal blockade, something that was called illegal. And I was trying to say, oh, um, I know Pierre Polyver was there. I know he openly supported the truckers. And it certainly looked like he was supporting this protest and the blockade. But it's not like he was out there saying, keep the blockade going. Although he would say, keep the momentum going. Uh, let's take some calls. Man, this is amazing. Um, Jewel in Montreal. What's cooking? <laughs> Great, uh, I mean, I, I just like to say one thing. I mean, I have um, liberal, but uh, I think conservatives should get their act together. Instead of fighting among themselves, they should look how to be a prime minister and run the country. And I don't think Pierre Polyev has any ingredients whatsoever. I think Patrick Brown and John Shari has little chance, but the way Trudeau make the coalition with the uh, NDP, I don't think they have any chance whatsoever. Well, we'll see. Jewel, I appreciate the call. 
Uh, look, the, the, the deal with – it's not a coalition, but the power-sharing arrangement as it – well, not even power-sharing. The deal to keep the liberals in power um, in return for, for, for spending programs like on dental and, and pharmacare may well make it more difficult. Or maybe it splits the vote. Now, the conservatives are calling it an NDP liberal deal because if you're a conservative, your number one strategy is to raise support for the NDP. A strong NDP vote splits the progressive vote and conservatives win. That's what happened when Stephen Harper won his majority. Jack Layton had the big surge. The NDP surged. The liberals collapsed. The middle, the, the progressive split and conservatives win. That's why it's strategically important for conservatives to call this a NDP liberal budget. Robin Milton, what's up? I'll give you a second, Rob. What do you have? Dan in Chatham. Let's try you. Dan in Chatham. What's up? It's Judy from Montreal. Okay, Judy from Montreal. Go for it. Polyadra is the best guy, and the I supported the truckers. I was very, very upset with Trudeau with the... The emergency, he had no right to do it. It was wrong. And I support the conservatives all the way. Yeah, and, and you support Pierre Polyevre, but not Charest, is that it? Um, well, Charest is a liberal. Okay. I, I'm in Quebec. He was a liberal uh, leader here. His views are liberal. I don't want a liberal view anymore. I want conservatives. Okay, so you, so that's hitting home with you, Pierre's attack on him. Thank you. I appreciate the call, Judy. Thank you. Um, I think I've got, I'm going to try Dan. I, I think I owe you a call, Dan. What's up? Yeah, no, I finally got through. Thanks, Evan. I'm old enough to remember John Sheree. He's a leftover old progressive conservative, and then he flip-flops and becomes a liberal in, in Quebec. Now, this whole thing about uh, empty promises, it just I've, I've been around long enough, and I've heard this before. Um, I don't like a guy that keeps saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again. It's just kind of irritating. And then as far as I'm concerned, he's just a I As a card-carrying conservative, we might as well just say uh, Trudeau's going to win the next election. So you're all, you're all in on Pierre? Yeah, I think so. He's a young guy. He's full of a lot of uh, good ideas. And, and the carbon tax is a waste of money, and it's holding us back. And uh, the truckers, a lot of truckers suffered pretty bad in that block. Let me, can I, ask, can I, can I ask you a question about the carbon? Sheree yeah. told me, Aaron O'Toole made this point, Lisa Rate makes this point, that unless they have a coherent price on carbon and an approach to the environment, they can't win a general election. What's your take? Look at the rest of the world and what they're doing and belching the crap into the air. And we're struggling in the northern climate here, paying carbon taxes. Good goodness, I'm right next door to Governor Gretchen Whitmer. She wants to shut off Line 5 because of this green communist uh, agenda. Uh, we we got to survive with, with oil with oil. Otherwise, we're going to freeze and starve to death. But anyways, Evan, thanks for taking my talk. Have a fabulous day. Yeah, you too. There's a Cracker Jack right there, right? There's a call. And it's interesting what resonates. And, and let me read you a couple more. Um, and then I think I got time for one more call. Um, Sheree is right, Evan. Paul Evan did openly support the truckers. If Pierre wins, there'll be a, this will be a gift to the liberals. They will easily clobber him. Um, 
the occupation of Ottawa was deemed illegal by Doug Ford. Supporting an illegal occupation does disqualify Pierre in a moral political sense, especially for someone, a conservative, professing to respect law and order. So Sheree is right, some people say. And a lot of people say no, that um, I worked with Sheree before. I would never support him now. He's yesterday's man. He's trying to make a comeback, and he's failing miserably, says Dr. Roman. So look, man, this is a robust race. Do these insults turn you off or on? Let me take one call. Edward, what's up? Hey, thanks for taking my call. Been voting now for better part of 40 years. I tend to vote from the middle. I voted for uh, both parties in those 40 years. Um, but the middle now uh, doesn't seem to exist. Fiscal responsibility is a big one in my uh at my place, if we only have to look at the GDP per capita number in Canada over the last 15 years, and it's virtually been stagnant, compared to Australia, which has grown by 30% during the same period in their GDP, you look at the U.S., they've grown by almost over 50% in their GDP per capita. It's an important number that nobody ever talks about in this country. But basically, our standard of living is going down and down vis-a-vis our competitors. And that's important to me. So I want to know when the spending is going to stop. But who are you just on this? I agree. But are you a, a Paul Liev guy, a Sheree guy, a Patrick Brown person, a Leslie Lewis a Paul person? Paul guy, because I think well, I've guy. seen him act as a firecracker. And this current government uh, that we have, I mean, the Liberals All have right. been very successful. Two-thirds of the time, they're in power. But they're in power because they occupy the middle. The Liberal government that we have right now has All moved right. so far left of center. And, and, like, and I'm just running out of time. I don't want to cut you off. But, Edward, I, I think I, I heard your point. I'm coming up to a commercial break, and I've got someone who's trying to save Juneau Beach. Remember these French developers trying to build a condo on Juneau Beach where the Canadians landed? i got to get to that, Edward. Stay with us. Helping you through these unique times, this is The Evan Solomon Show. Is there any more iconic Canadian place around the world? A place associated with bravery, sacrifice, and freedom. Bravery, sacrifice, and freedom than Juno Beach. Juno Beach in France, one of the five beaches, finally, that the Allies used to take back Europe from the darkness of Nazism on June 6, 1944. A day when 340 Canadians died and 574 were wounded, and that was just the beginning. That was just the beginning of what happened on that remarkable D-Day Juno Beach. And since then, there's been a museum there. Marking this 10-kilometer stretch of the French coastline that the Allies named in code Juno, where the 3rd Infantry Division and the 2nd Armored Brigade landed under heavy fire 
14,000 Canadian soldiers landed or parachuted into France on that D-Day. There were 110 warships, 10,000 sailors, 15 fighter and fighter bombers, squadrons. 359 Canadians lost their lives. And here we are in 2022 with another war in Europe. With the Russians invading Ukraine and Juno Beach could be desecrated, that's the word I'm using, by a French developer who wants to build a condo there. And Cindy Clegg has organized the Save Juno Beach campaign. And we've had her on before, and we promised that we would not let this story dry up because it was such an insult. And Cindy's back. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Evan. God, I'm mad about this. <laughs> What's happened? Tell tell us, how how's the support going, and, and how's the literally the urgent uh, need to save Juno Beach as a sacred place? Well, Evan, since we last talked, which was just a month ago, it's been incredible. So we're really gaining momentum. Canadians have sent nearly 50,000 letters to members of Parliament, cabinet ministers, ambassadors in Canada and France, demanding that these luxury condos um, be stopped. So I think it is... I'm so optimistic because every MP who's received these letters is really taking this to heart. So, you know, in Ottawa, we've got this in, in the House of Commons, the Standing Committee on Veterans Affairs. So Frank Caputo, who is a member of parliament from Kamloops, and he's the conservative critic for Veterans Affairs, um, created a motion, and it passed unanimously all parties agreed that Juno Beach is one of the most sacred places in Canadian military history. It also went on all the members on this committee object to, to the plans to develop the area immediately next to the Juno Beach Centre. It supports our campaign, the Save Juno Beach campaign, and it wants the government to give financial or other support uh, to the Juno Beach Association to protect the integrity of this primary site of commemoration. So, and more than that, then it all goes back to the House of Commons. One more thing, now the Minister of Veterans mm, Affairs Lawrence McCauley. is on his way to Juneau Beach on Wednesday, along with Mr. Caputo, with Rachel Blaney of the NDP, Luke Desilet of the Bloc Québécois, and one more PC member, Alex Ruff. They're going on a fact-finding tour and see for themselves. They're meeting with the local mayor, and they're looking for answers. I, I just can't think of a better outcome. Well, hang on for the outcome. Now, yeah. I, I know Honorable Lawrence McCauley, the Veterans Affairs Minister, is going there, as you say, with Frank Caputo from the Conservatives and, and members of the NDP. So everybody's there's, this is not a partisan issue. Nobody, it, which is you, good. It, but but it, I know yeah. the Battle of Vimy Ridge, by the way, can you yeah. imagine? Uh, 1917, April 9th, we just passed yeah. marking and memorializing that, where yeah. 3,600 uh, um Canadians lost their lives, and over 10,600 were, were, were wounded. But he's also going to Juno Beach, as you say, for the Juno Beach Center, which is a um, the museum in Normandy yep. uh, about that. But what about the developer? Like, I thought this was our, like, I, I, I look, Canadians don't want this to happen. Who's going to stop the French developer? 
Well, the French are going to have to. You know, there has to be a political solution to this. The Port Juno Beach Center has already spent, in the last two years, over $400,000 in legal fees defending itself. The developer keeps taking the Juno Beach Center to court in order to use its driveway to run all of its construction material across this memorial site and then use it for everybody who lives there as, as a as a. Have road. they started building, Cindy? No, they haven't, right, but okay. it, it could be, it literally could be any time now. Um, there are some delays but uh, in building until September, but it doesn't stop the developer from wanting to get on the site. So, you so know, what like, happens? Like, what can the Canadian government do? I know Veterans Affairs actually gives money to the museum, but what can they actually do to stop it? Well, yeah, they they give a little bit of money, but this museum is actually run on admission fees and donations from Canadians with some support from the French government. But, you know, there are options. Uh, Vimy, the land that Vimy Ridge is on, is actually owned by Canada. It was given by the French to Canada. It, at Juno Beach, it, there's a there's a lease for 99 years. Um, at Hill 70, uh, that um, the French government provided some land that could bridge other land together. So there are chances for a creative solutions that can happen here. But but uh, the developer is really angry about. Well, getting... the developer would have to be compensated, though. No. Who oh yeah, be? yeah. So well, it, certainly our campaign is doing what we can to help build that war chest for the Juno Beach Center. Yeah. But you know, between Canada, between France, and fundraising. We we may be able to do that, but the developer has to come to the table. And, How can we uh, let a developer build on Juno Beach? I mean, it's just outrageous. And I know it's 10 kilometers, and I know in Europe there's been so many wars. People say, well, everything's been a war zone. This is different. It, this, it, was, this is a different place and a different moment that was the darkest time in modern history in France. And Canadians lost their lives defending democracy there. The idea that that place is now going to be a home to condos. Nancy just wrote me a note, Cindy Clegg, who's the organizer of the Save Juno Beach campaign. And Nancy just wrote me, Cindy, Evan, we're losing our history. My father was at that battle. Our historic statues are being torn down. And now this, it has to stop before we are lost forever. It, 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 she's absolutely right. And, and you know, I think, you know, it, for some people it's very difficult if they don't have family there. But if you think about the war raging due to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, there are those who are defending their nation and their people, and they're going to be forever revered and honored. So the sites of those battles today will become places of quiet reflection and thanks for those who gave their all. For Canadians... That one, one such place is Juno Beach, yeah. and it's it's um, an extraordinary example of where Canadian acts of personal courage played out for the, what they call the longest day. So I think one of the issues is is that people in Canada didn't right. know the Cindy, government wasn't Cindy, aware. Uh, Cindy, I'm hitting my brakes. Cindy Clegg, the organizer of Save Juno Beach, came in. Cindy, I promise you, you're coming back. We are on your side. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Is owning a dog a selfish pursuit? 
when I saw the headline, I'm like, here we go again. Somebody's done some research and they're going to make dog owners feel crappy. As you know, I'm a dog owner and I love dogs, love cats. And and if you want to give a shout out to Puddle, my uh, half, not a breed. It, it was more like, I, how do I say this? It was more like a farm one night stand between a lab and a St. Bernard and they produce Puddle. So it's half lab, half St. Bernard. This is not a breed. It is a... Uh, product of a farm love. Uh, but Molly Lebensky is a Queen's University PhD student in the English department, and she's working on a thesis called Who Let the Dogs Die? Domestic Animal Abuse in American Fiction. But she believes that after looking at this, um, that in fact, it's selfish right now to own a dog. And, and here's the stat that really twigged me. American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and the Canadian Humane Society, as I read from this article, in 2019, nearly 400,000 shelter dogs were euthanized across North America, end quote. And Molly Lebensky joins me now. Molly, that stat really changed my view because how does that stat and what does it tell you about pet ownership in North America? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I think it's because we've developed a bit more of an entitlement when it comes to the types of animals we want to own. So it's not necessarily that all pet keeping is a selfish pursuit, but I think when we get into the designer dogs and the customization of dogs to meet our own personal needs, that's where we kind of reduce them from more, uh, more of a more reduce them to more of a commodity versus a companion. So even though from, I agree with your sentiment that it's a seemingly controversial opinion from the get go, but I think when we break it down, there's actually a lot of common ground that can be found among people when it comes to dogs, because I do believe we all want the best for them, but perhaps don't always consider the ways in which we cause them harm, okay, particularly well, now let, in let's regards t- to how we obtain them. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, by the way, are you, I'm a pet owner. I, I grew up with dogs. Uh, my wife grew up with dogs. My kids love a dog. I love a dog. What, what, what's your say? Are you a, like a dog person? I am absolutely a dog person. Grew up with um dogs with my family and I recently adopted my own dog during uh, the pandemic. What'd you get, Molly? Um, I ended up getting um, a two-year-old Australian shepherd who was surrendered for biting <laughs> and food aggression. Um, but I think he's a great um, sort of poster child for adoption because I wasn't even trying to get a specific breed or a young dog and I ended up with such a great one. So I think if people put in a bit of effort to um, adopt, they can still kind of meet those specific needs that they might want without having to go to a breeder and contribute to the cycle of euthanasia that happens in shelters. Okay, let's get to the, the controversial part and then we'll go backwards. Because I, because mm-hmm. this is a big deal. Why can why do you suggest that 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 owning a dog nowadays can be a selfish pursuit? Mm-hmm. What is selfish about it? Yeah, I think if we look towards the reasoning for why people want to get dogs, I don't think we really question it enough because they are so great and they bring so much joy to our lives. But I think if you were to really break it down and ask individuals why they want a dog, it's sometimes difficult to come up with a reason that is truly selfless or altruistic. A lot of the time it's people want to get more exercise, so they think a dog will help them do that, or couples want to test the waters by seeing how they parent a dog before they decide to parent a child. But isn't that and okay? Kind of like, 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 so what if they say, you know, a dog is a walking coach? What, why is that so bad? Um, I think because it tends, when we're going for a personal fulfillment in some way, we do tend to neglect the dogs that are already in shelter. So once 
once personal agendas are at the forefront for why we're purchasing dogs, I think that's when we fall into that territory of going for the designer dogs and customizing them to fulfill those needs even more thoroughly. But so you're saying that someone that goes to a breeder of any dog or someone says, oh, I want a Labradoodle, that's selfish just because they've, they, they want a Labradoodle, they don't want to go to the shelter? Um, I think you could find a Labradoodle in a shelter. There are a lot of hypoallergenic dogs available if you put in the time to search for them. But yeah, I would, I would question someone, why specifically do you want a Labradoodle? What is it specifically about that genetic combination that speaks to you and why is it so important? But I just, I just want, everyone's got different tastes. Like, you know, someone says, I love, you know, chihuahuas. And I'm like, I don't. By the way, my brother-in-law <laughs> has a chihuahua. I'm like, it's not for me. I could never own a chihuahua. I just, it's not a thing that I'm attracted to. I like a bigger dog or I like, people have different tastes. Maybe someone says, I really want a pure, but I've always loved, you know, you know, Newfoundlanders or whatever the dog is. Why is that like, who are we to decide what's selfish and not? That's my question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no need to necessarily ever obtain a dog that you don't like. So I think I'm more so trying to draw attention to, the ways that you can go about getting a dog in perhaps a more ethical way. So even if you get a dog from a breeder who you treat wonderfully and love for its entire life and spoil, it doesn't exist in isolation from animal cruelty. The actual process of breeding dogs um, involves a lot of harm to the animals. Often the mother dogs are discarded or surrendered to shelters once they're unable to keep breeding and producing an income for the breeders. So I think that's where Whenever money is involved or income is involved um, with animal life, I think it's a bit of a tricky territory to navigate ethically. Okay, but I, I'm speaking to you, Molly. Molly, uh, and I know you love dogs, and I get this, but uh, and I have a question from a, from a listener here at seven ten ten. But like you know, there's a lot of people saying I have a I, I bought it from a great breeder. I love my breeder mm-hmm. and I love my dog, and and they don't want to be talked down to and say like, hey, now I'm I'm told I'm selfish because I didn't go to the shelter. Like, I'm just trying to figure out if that's a positive way to kind of mm-hmm. reach out to people to make them feel crappy about their dog choice. Absolutely, and I'm definitely not trying to be speaking from a high horse. I didn't actually choose that headline title for the article either. Um, but I think I'm just more so trying to draw awareness. I've heard a lot of people and a lot of friends of mine have said, I got this dog from a breeder and now I feel differently. And I also grew up completely wanting a dog from a breeder. So I try to remain sympathetic to the fact that I think it's something we just don't really consider that often. We do. Our culture has dogs so thoroughly integrated into it that, that I think that leads to the entitlement of us feeling as though we are entitled to have whichever type of dog. You're, you're not want. a fan of the designer dog, like the crossbreeding. Yeah, for sure. Why not? Um, Not to get too vegan on you, but to me, it's really similar to the way we genetically modify the animals that we ultimately consume. So I think we do kind of figuratively consume dogs in a way. We expect certain things of them, and that's why we choose to sort of construct, artificially construct these designer dogs. And it's just a really denaturalizing process to me that, again, reduces them to more of a commodity than it does acknowledge them as living beings. Right. I mean, a lot of people, yeah, that's true. They've they've been crossbreeding animals for, like, millennia. Yeah, and the man who actually invented the Labradoodle, he did so because um, a woman needed a hypoallergenic guide dog because her husband was allergic to dogs and she was blind. And that that inventor has said that it's 
one of the biggest regrets of his life because it contributed to the designer dog fad that we're, we probably won't see the end of for a long time. Probably. Someone just texted me. My husband and I just filled out an application to adopt a shelter dog, a mutt. It was my top, it was like my top secret security clearance questionnaire when I joined the Navy Reserve 40 years ago. Can you ask Molly why a fenced yard is a must, why they need to know our family income? It's overkill. Yeah, I think um, a lot of the time the application processes are very thorough, but I think you'll run into that if you're going to a supposedly reputable breeder as well. And it's mostly just to ensure that the dog is going to a home where he can be adequately cared for. A lot of shelters don't have a fenced-in backyard requirement. I adopted from Dog Tales Rescue, which is just north of Toronto, and I live in an apartment currently. And I don't have a fenced-in yard, of course, so um, it depends on the rescue and what they're qualifications right. well, I mean, but then there's needs. the ethics of that too right like should you keep a dog inside an apartment my god it's all molly i first of all i really appreciate you coming on i love Ooh. that you're, you're you're in this space i know it can get super controversial as you know you talk about pets everyone's got an opinion molly lebensky is a queen's university phd student in the english department uh, hey molly i appreciate it thank you uh by the way her thesis is who let the dogs die domestic animal abuse in american fiction but coming up Let's keep the dog conversation going. Thank you, Molly. Do you think designer dogs are essentially selfish? Should we be adopting more shelter dogs? 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. I want to hear from those dog owners and, and the designer dog owners, too. That's coming up next. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Is owning a pet, a pet dog, selfish? Especially a designer dog. That's what Molly says. Now, I don't want to overly simplify what Molly Lebensky, a a PhD student who's written about this, said. But it caught our attention. Because first I said, no! No, don't talk down to us. I'm a dog owner. I don't like to hear that. But here's the stat that that snapped my attention. The American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and the Canadian Humane Society have stats that show uh, in 2019, 400,000 shelter dogs were euthanized across North America. 400,000 shelter dogs euthanized. So Molly said, well, like, how are you going to ignore that? When people are getting designer dogs and to fit their little needs and they should just be adopting from a shelter. She doesn't even like breeders. And I, and I got to say, as a dog owner, now, now our dog's not a purebred, but I was all in on a purebred. I would have got a lab. I didn't want a, a dog that had, you know, I wouldn't want my, I, I kind of wanted a midsize hypoallergenic, non-shedding dog, and I got a giant, non-purebred, non-hypoallergenic, wonderful dog named Puddle. Welcome to uh, family life. Do you think uh, keeping pets uh, or, or dogs is selfish? Are you selfish for having a designer dog? one 855 or seven ten ten. Man, the calls are blowing up. Let me play you a clip from Molly... Here's what she said. Basically, that the, the, they're, they're a form of entitlement. I think it's because we've developed a bit more of an entitlement when it comes to the types of animals we want to own. So it's not necessarily that all pet keeping is a selfish pursuit. But I think when we 
get into the designer dogs and the customization of dogs to meet our own personal needs. That's where we kind of reduce them from more, uh, more of a more reduce them to more of a commodity versus a companion. Maybe I, I actually think there's lots of reasons to adopt dogs and to buy dogs and to get dogs, and it's hard to judge people. But Edward, uh, no, sorry, uh, Brian, uh, no, what I got? Sorry, let me start with Anthony. Anthony in Hamilton, former former chairman at the Humane Society and a practicing veterinarian. I want to get your take, Anthony. What's cooking? Well, I just find it a little bit curious that a PhD student in English is doing this kind of work. But having said that, think about the population of North America. There's probably almost 400 million people and 400,000 dogs euthanized, 400,000 dogs euthanized is not a large number of dogs relative to the overall number. Now, I've been out of the humane movement for about 10 years, but in the 20 years prior to that, every year that I was involved, we euthanized less dogs, and I suspect that that trend has continued. I think that there are far more non-euthanasia um, shelters than there ever were before, and I think that the humane movement is doing a great job to try to uh, make sure that um, dogs that are worthy of a forever home find that home. Um, and so the number So what do you make of that 400,000? Yeah, what, what's your take on that? that? That does not scare me because, again, 400,000 compared to 400 million, I would bet that um, uh, uh, 40% of all households, if I had to guess, in North America have a dog. And so... The relative number is very low, and so that's going to include animals that were euthanized for aggression, for uh, antisocial behavior, all kinds of other things. I think that the humane movement, at least from my perspective, has done yeoman service to try to find good homes and forever homes for as many dogs as they can. And what's your take on this, the, the the, the proliferation of designer dogs, like like, first of all, they're bonkers expensive. I don't know how people afford these things, but what do you make of it? You're a vet. Well, think of, you know, dogs have lived with us uh, for 10,000 years. And from the time that we've uh, started keeping dogs, we've done it for selfish reasons. We do it for protection. We did it to control rodents. We did it uh, to aid us in the, the pursuit of war. Uh, we did it for herding animals. And so uh, genetically you know, cultivating animals that serve our needs best is not something that's new right. to the human uh, population. It's just that now people are maybe, you know, selecting for um, physical qualities or attractive qualities rather than hurting abilities or, you know, work ethic in a dog. So I don't think it's new. Um, you know, and I think that the fact that people will pay $3,500 for what I call a mutt, and, and between you, me, and the telephone post, a Labradoodle is still a mutt in my world because uh, that's just two breeds that have been crossed. And the fact that people will pay that much money for them tells me that there's a shortage, there's an over-demand and an undersupply of, of dogs available. And, you know, because if there were too many dogs, people wouldn't be paying that much money for them. All right, Anthony, what a good call, man. Thank you. That, that's a great perspective. Um, let I appreciate that very much. Um, what do I got here? Um, Jeffrey in North York, what do you have? Yeah, good afternoon, Evan. Uh, I think what we really need, because there's so many rescues and humane societies that have got unwanted animals, and you said yourself, uh, so many that are euthanized, um, I think what we need to do is some countries have passed a law forbidding the sale of animals certain times of the year 
so that if somebody really wants an animal, they have to go to a shelter to get one. Uh, because the thing is that a lot of these animals, people get them as a novelty at Christmas time or at Easter or whatever for Pesach or, you know, some other, some other time. And then after the holidays, the kids don't want the animal. They're bored with it. They don't like the fact that they have responsibility to clean up and to do this, this, this. And the animal then gets surrender to a shelter or to a rescue That's society. an interesting idea, Jeffrey. Yeah. I appreciate that. First of all, I've never heard anyone getting a dog for Passover. We can't even get bread. But uh, I like that. Uh, Jeffrey, that's an interesting one. Maybe at high uh, purchase times, banning sales of dogs? I, I don't know if that would work. But uh, Jeffrey, I'm, I'm going to look into that. That's really interesting. Uh, Tom in Keswick, what's cooking? Hi, I'm one of those selfish people, I guess. Oh, my cousin is. He has a Labradoodle or golden doodle, because he's allergic to dogs, basically. And his dog is hypoallergenic. He wants a dog, has a young family, and so it works famously for him. So he can't just go to a shelter and get a dog. I personally am selfish. I say that because we have two dogs. They're black labs. They are gun dogs. And come hunting season, you have never in your life seen a dog so happy as one of these labs going out to fetch a dead bird. It is unbelievable. And it's much more success kill rate, too, if you want to look at it from that perspective, where the, the birds are down, the dog is getting it. Yeah. And that's what they were bred to do. So they were designed over who knows how many centuries to fetch dogs, like the, the first chap was saying about the working dogs. They're working dogs, so they were designed to do this. I don't see anything wrong with that. And I will say... One thing, when I was originally looking for a a lab 15 years ago, I went to the SPCA. I told them outright, do you have any labs coming up? Um, You know, see their pedigree or whatever. Actually, yes, we have a a female bitch. We have a bitch right now. She's about to have puppies. They might be purebred or a little bit. I said, oh, that's wonderful. I'd love to see her. And I want to see, you know, how trainable she would be for her puppies. I want to use them for hunting. I was barred, blacklisted from the OSPCA, from owning a dog, because I was going to use that dog for what its intended purpose. Right. Oh, I see. I, now, that's life. interesting. I'm surprised about that. I appreciate the call. That's surprising. But, but yeah, like, you know, dogs love to do what they're bred to do. I, I'm, I'm in agreement with that. Um, that's really, really interesting. Okay. Uh, I don't think I have time for another call, do I? LZ, uh, do I have time for a quickie? I got to do. I got one minute. Uh, you know what? I got so many calls on this. I know we've got someone with a designer dog. Um, but Igor said, uh, Igor, I'm just going to paraphrase what you're saying. People should be held accountable for having to surrender their pets. But what if, what does that mean? I, I wish I had a little more time. Look, if you buy a dog and you don't like it and then you turn it back, should you have to pay? What if someone dies and they've left a dog and there's no one to care for it? Or what if a kid develops an allergy? There's lots of reasons why people surrender pets. What if they're moving? We can't take a pet. We're moving to a city where they, you know, apartment doesn't have a pet. So there's lots of reasons. Like, I think we should be very careful in general judging people for why they become pet owners. You know, I know there's lots of laws and rules, but why don't we back off judging people? Is that a... Can we not say that anymore? Stop judging. We'll take a break. So 
sorting through the changes. Here's Evan Solomon. There's a new poll out today that says, you know, some of the liberals are a little worried about this deal between the NDP and the liberals because they're worried that, you know, like Judy Scro told the Hill Times and name checked to the Hill Times for breaking this story that she's, you know, look, she's okay with it, but she's worried about the spending. So who got the raw end of the stick? Well, we saw the, the look, in the new budget, there's $5.3 billion over five years for dental care for people, uh, and it starts with $300 million for dental care for people under the age of three for low-income Canadians. Oh, under the age of 12 for low-income Canadians. And obviously, the 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 budget was the first big test of this confidence and supply deal between these two. Some people think it's bad, but look, you know, this is it's perfectly legal. You can make agreements all the time. And and but I guess the question is, uh, I spoke to Jugmeet Singh about it on the weekend and I say, how do the NDP support issues like dental care? But then they really say, oh, the liberals have failed on the environment. Remember, the liberals greenlit that Bay de Nord project, that oil and gas project off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador that they just greenlit last week. So I asked um, Jugmeet Singh, and I want you to hear this because I want to try to understand this deal. All you got from the budget was, uh, well, the key thing in this budget was the $330 million down payment on the dental plan. Is that enough at this point to make this deal work for you and for you to support the budget? Well, that's not all we got, but it's not something we can underestimate the impact. I've spoken to so many people, they can't get their teeth fixed. And this will be life-changing to be able to go to the dentist. This is the biggest expansion of public health care in a generation. So it's not insignificant. It's significant and meaningful, and people will be able to get their teeth fixed. On top of that, we push for massive improvements on the affordable housing front. The definition of affordable housing, as per the Liberals, would mean that in a city like Montreal, that $2,200 was considered affordable. With our new definition that we brought in, affordability has dropped to under $800. That's a significant change. And before, the buildings would only have 20% of affordable uh, units. Now we double that to 40%. So that definition is also a game changer. Okay. Let's talk about housing then, um, because it's key for, for the Liberals that are trying to make it the cornerstone, $10 billion over five years. Um, but let's talk about essentially the tax-free savings account for first-time home buyers. They can put up to $40,000 over four years, and they can take it out tax-free. Not insignificant. But none of the measures, that measure, banning foreign buyers, none of it materially is going to lower the price of houses. In other words, they're incremental helps, but they're not transformational. What's the transformational fix for housing? Well, there's two parts to housing. One is there are pressures that are driving up the cost of housing. Housing has become more commodified, and that's something we've got to tackle. So ways to do that, getting getting at uh, property flipping, looking at the capital gains around people who have secondary or third homes, not the primary residence, but looking at capital gains, it's incentivizing using property as a, like a stock market, as okay, a vehicle but I just want to make just more to, money. I, I'm not trying to interrupt you, but they did do something on flipping, as you know. They did. There's a penalty for flipping within the first 12 months. And I want to be clear on, you know, capital gains is an issue. Are you pushing at all for any capital gains taxes on selling a primary residence? Because no. there's already capital gains on selling a secondary residence. No, no, and not on primary residence, but on secondary or investment properties. What we've seen is it's been incentivized by the lower capital gains 
for assets like that. That's incentivizing a market that's driving up the cost of housing. And so that's something that we proposed in our campaign to get at, uh, to look at real systemic changes to tackle the pressures driving up housing. And then we need to invest in building more supply in a massive way. So we pushed the Liberals to go far further than they would have gone, uh, but for the fact that we had this agreement. And it, it made them change the definition, which is going to be a game changer for the builds of, of homes that are actually affordable on top of more money to build homes right away. Okay, uh, the environment. I'm trying to just figure out how you balance, because part of what you're doing by supporting them and keeping them in power for three years is it's a trade-off, right? I like dental care, but I don't like what they're doing on the environment. Uh, two things on the environment. One, they just gave approval to Bay de Nord, the deep water drilling off uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. That'll, uh, when it comes online in a number of years, three, four, five years, 200 thousand barrels of oil a day. Yes, it's low cost emissions to extract, but they still got to burn the emissions. That's a different thing. And two, they've got very big subsidies for carbon capture and storage in this. That's a huge part of this budget. You don't support those things. So how do you support this government keeping them in power? We're going to continue to say it's wrong. We're going to say that that approach is wrong, that we believe very strongly public money should go to workers, should go to renewable and clean energy and should not be going towards subsidizing profitable oil and gas companies. But what you're suggesting is, when people are telling us they want Ottawa to work, they sent us here just six months ago to get help to people, and we got dental care, the biggest expansion of public health care in a generation, that the only way we can do anything is to then force an election where people will spend weeks and weeks dealing with that instead of getting help that they need. I don't accept that. But, I don't but, think that's but, the but only way know, we can get help to, to make, people. But, the, but you're making a choice in doing that. You're saying, look, I want to force them to get dental care or pharmacare, and by your own admission, the cost is to the environment. So you're making a choice here. You're no, saying, no, no, look, the choice, the choice where the liberals are making that choice. Well, wait, the you liberals, can't have both you they can't are in government. credit for their policies when you like them. Absolutely and, we can. And, and then not take credit when you don't that's like exactly them. That's exactly what you're we're going to do. But you're keeping them in no, power. No, no, no. Okay, you think that Canadians want to go to an election just six months after? You think that would be respectful to the I'm choice? I'm just saying it's not no, a political let me finish. buffet but let me say, finish. thank you. Let me finish my thought. Mine, Who's theirs. in government right now? The Liberals are in government. Okay. They make choices, and that's their decision. We look at the opportunity that we have to get people help. If the Liberals are bad in the environment, the Liberals are bad on the environment. If we're getting dental care, that's expressly and clearly because we made them do it. They just voted against it, and now we made it but, happen. But you know the argument They're, in environment. Right now, the Prime say, Minister and the government are making decisions. That's their decision. We I, use this position to get people the help they need. And we're critical of bad decisions, and we will raise those but, concerns. But, but because, I, I think it's important to explore. Because the confidence and supply agreement that you've struck with the Liberals will keep them in power for three years, right? That means those are critical years when it comes to the environment. If it's so important to you and you don't like subsidies, you're propping up a government that does carbon capture and storage. You just propped up a government that did Bay de Nord. A lot of people like that. You don't, though. How are you absolving yourself from responsibility? It's your agreement to keep them in power. There's no question that we would make different choices if we were in government. But given the opportunity we have right now to get dental care to people, to help them find a home that's in their budget, there is no question in my mind that that is the right thing to do, to fight to get people the help they need. And we'll continue to fight on things that we disagree on. We're going to continue to oppose their decisions and raise concerns about things like the increasing subsidies to profitable fossil fuel companies instead of increasing investments in renewable energy. We will raise those concerns. But is your, le 
just last question, because I think the politics of this is interesting. Is your leverage on that stuff kind of weak? Because now that they've made the deal, the $330 million they gave for dental care, they say, well, Jagmeet Singh can say all he wants about the environment. We've got his vote anyway. And your leverage goes from here. And immediately it goes to nothing because you have no political leverage over them now. Well, really, at the end of the day, this is about what people chose. People chose a government. I respect the choice of people. I don't agree with the decisions that this government's making. But people chose this government in a, dual, in, a, in, a, in a full and fair election. In this context of a minority government where we were just voted into power six months ago, I'm going to look for every opportunity to help people out. And I think it would be irresponsible six months after an election to say, okay, now we're going to plunge the country into another election when we're dealing with the cost of living going up, when we're dealing with a war that makes us all feel less safe, and when we're dealing with a pandemic still. I think the responsible thing to do is to get help to people and to use our power to deliver it, and that's what we did. Okay, what do you think of that? That's a good back and forth with the leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, on how he defends the deal. On one hand, I've got that. On the other hand, I, I let them get that. If you're a progressive, what do you think? If you're a conservative, what do you think? If you're a liberal, what do you think? You buy that rationale. Does it make sense to have this deal? I've given a good press. You know, I'm pressing them hard there. How do you take credit for dental care, but then absolve yourself of responsibility on the environment if you disagree on that? And he said, they elected a government. I'll I'll get what I can get out of them. But it's more than that. You made a deal with them. So just text me on that. I'd love to hear from you because I'm trying to understand that. and, And I'd love to hear your point of view, as I always do. Coming up next, though, is hybrid work here to stay? The federal government says it is. Are you less productive when you work at home or more productive? My argument is less. But find out. If you're productive, send me a text at 71010 or one 1010 Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Federal government says it's going to make hybrid work permanent. They're going to convert some old office buildings in, in Ottawa over five years to uh, residences, and they're going to save $6 billion, and people are more efficient. Is hybrid work here to stay? Probably. Is it more? Are you more productive when you work from home? My argument is no, but there's a catch. But I'd like to hear from you. one 1010 1-855-633-1010, or 71010. Studies have shown, look, people think it's here, and, and we know that. Um, there's lots of studies about um, the move towards permanent uh, hybrid work. Shopify, Facebook, all the big tech companies are doing it. I get it. Like, And whether the guy, the richest man in the world, Zuckerberg, he's like, I really like working at home. Really? You're worth $125 billion, buddy. Yeah, I don't. You're working at home is like, yeah, of course you like working at home. You know, the kids screaming like, Sorry, a billionaire, a guy worth over $120 billion telling us that he's okay to work at home is goofy. Stupid. It's arrogant. But look, one of the, there's lots of studies on this. And, and one of the reasons why, look, I believe people are less efficient at home. You can't, you can't, you don't work as much. You work later hours. You don't absorb as much. It's not collaborative enough, but you do save on the commute. The average American commute is about 55 minutes, same in Canada. 
The commute time is so productive. People save an hour to an hour and a half a day not in traffic. That is productivity. That is money. And most of the productivity gains from working at home come from losing the commute. And on that, I get. I totally get. You're, you're, you know, some people are commuting two hours a day. It's unbelievable. It's expensive, bad for the climate, takes time. And yeah, you're way more efficient without that. So on the lack of commute I get, I really do get. And, and so I want to, I definitely, definitely, definitely um, agree on that. Evan, pre-pandemic, I already worked hybrid. Two days at home, I found the opposite. Way less interruptions than the days I worked from home. I had an office at the office so I could close the door if I needed, but I didn't like to do that. You know what? Maybe you're right. Evan, I disagree with you. By the way, every time you guys write to me at 71010 and you disagree, I think, is this my wife and kids? Because this sounds like home. I haven't won an argument at home in like years. So can you? This, I feel like I'm working at home now. Evan, I disagree with you. Since working from home, I'm 10 times more productive. I'd work drop-ins, unscheduled visitors, daily gossiping, going for coffee breaks, smoke breaks, have to go to various meetings, so much better and happier, and eating better too, says Luke. Well, you know, I always love to say don't generalize, and, 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 I, and, and I stand to be corrected here. There are people believe they're more productive at home. And that may be true. Some businesses are going to work better with this hybrid model. And there's no question that some people will work better and their job can use it. And I think some businesses won't. Like, our business is not as good. Evan, I've been working from home for 15 years. I think we have two totally different ways of working, man. I'm as productive as ever. You have to set your boundaries when you're working at home. Then again, some people need a boss and need to be directed and can't leave themselves. That's, that's, that's key. Evan, I work three days in the office, two days at home. When I go to the office, people are talking in the hall like they've never seen another human being. They're loud. I itemize my share calendar, get t- uh, tasks done when I'm home. I pass something about an audit file. I get edit results. I've never failed my KPIs. Yeah, you know what? Do I have to rethink this, folks? Seven, ten, ten. Do I have to rethink this? Do I got any call? We were having a bit of a, I, folks, I know uh, we've got a bit of a text, uh, a caller uh, uh, issue here. We're not getting many calls through for some reason. We just got an issue with the one 1010 line. I just want to be transparent about that. I'd bring you on. So I'm going to read more texts at 71010. But if we can get the one 1010 done, um, we'll have to fix it up. But we're, we're getting, uh, we just have a problem there. So if you're calling and you're feeling a little frustrated, I just can't get, I can't get the calls on air right now. It's called technical things. And we're at work. If we were at home, ironically, probably would work extremely well. Evan, working in the office, I work nine to five. At home, I have an average of nine hours a day and I get more done. But Lena, is that good? You want to work nine hours a day, Lena? Evan, if you're not as productive at home, then that's on you. I would say overall, most are at least as productive or more, says Jess. I am getting the sense here at 71010 that most of you think you're more productive at home. Without a commute, my stress levels have dropped significantly. I'm never late due to traffic. That's worth its weight in gold. You're right. I have taken post-COVID because you, you, you hear me cough post-COVID because COVID 
for whatever reason, kind of got in my lungs and I didn't have a bad COVID experience, but it's persistent. I've taken a walking 45 minutes to work and I do my meeting with Sam sometimes on the phone. And I got to say, uh, I love that. That actually de-stresses me. Um, but working from home was good. Like I, I liked it. I, I loved it. I mean, I like the hybrid model, but I just had this sneaking suspicion. I was not as productive. And maybe that's on me. And I used to, listen, I'm, uh, I'm a pretty disciplined guy, but maybe it depends on the business. I could tell you that the texters are overwhelming that they like working from home. And I miss working from home. I was so much more productive. I had less stress. I had less anxiety. I could focus a lot easier on what was needed to be done, says Victoria. Vic, you may be right. Evan, home has the TV, all the honeydew projects, Wi-Fi, and no boss staring you down. I'm way more productive. I would love it if my husband worked from home. I wouldn't be so lonely. Oh, my God. I wouldn't be so lonely. Oh, there you go. So is this here to stay? Like, just text me because I know we're coming to two minutes left in the in the show. And, and, and I know the phones are probably blowing up, but, but I can't get to the phones because we're, we're having a text and call situation, but, uh, which is totally fine. But is there a sense now, like overwhelming, because I think CEOs are listening. I am getting the sense anecdotally from my qualitative research here that most people, and if you're a pollster listening, let me know. Most people, if they could, most people, if they could, would like a hybrid model. You know, come, come in two or three days a week, work two or three days at home. Come in two or three days a week. Now, some bosses do this. They'll say... Okay, you've got to come in on Monday and Friday, but you can take Tuesday and Thursday off. Because if we let people stay home Mondays and Fridays, they're just going to take long weekends. It'll be, quote, abused. So if you're going to give people the hybrid, say, come in Monday, take off Tuesday, come in Wednesday, take off Thursday, come in Friday. And some say that's crazy. That's a lack of trust of your employee. It shouldn't be about what you think they're doing. It should be about measuring their productivity and are they getting their work done? And if they're getting it done, who cares if they're in the office or they're in wherever they are on a boat? And the government says this model can save the government $6 billion over five years. But I just wonder what's happening to our, do we have to redesign our homes and our furniture and, and are you getting the right seating? And But just text me, man, this is so great. Um, maybe it is here to stay. Anyway, I'm at work and if you're at home, enjoy. And I love getting proven wrong. That's what this conversation's all about. I'll see you on Power Play, 5 p.m. Eastern.